St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. I think a lot of what I found interesting was what people stressed as omissions in the landscape, as places and people that should be remembered, should be commemorated, and aren't. That's Professor Jeff Ward. I'm Jeremy Goodman, and this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. Monument Lab is a group out of Philadelphia that studies how different places around the country choose to remember their history through things like statues and memorials. A year ago, they came to town and trained some local people to go out into St. Louis and invite folks to draw off the top of their heads a map of the city's important sites. They also invited participants to suggest any new monuments that they think should be built. The idea was to see which places and pieces of history loom largest in people's minds when they think about the city. The results are fascinating. There's some very straightforward maps. There's a remembrance of Michael Brown Jr. And many pleas to remember parts of the city that have been taken off the map over the years by so-called urban renewal and interstate highways. Jeff Ward is a professor of African and African-American history at Washington University. And he's done a lot of research into ways that communities can unlearn historical patterns of violence against black people through public disavowals of white supremacy, through things like taking down a Confederate monument or putting up a new memorial for a stop on the Underground Railroad, say. He and his students studied the maps last year. I asked Jeff Ward to talk about the patterns that they found in the maps based on the identity of the people who drew them. Map makers who self-identified as white tended to have more of a a sort of proprietary orientation towards the city. That is, they tended to describe the city as their city, you know, as this is my community or my neighborhood. These are, you know, the places I know and love. Do you you mean in the language that they actually put on the sheet? Like, this is my city? Yes, yes. Right, and not not like I own St. Louis, but using the word my and just communicating a sense of belonging, a sense of comfort and inclusion. I am in and of St. Louis, and um, and these are all the places, you know, I love, including the arch. You know, whereas others, the student noted, many of those whose maps she read who identified as people of color tended to... um, oriented the city differently as outsiders. Uh, and they, their, their maps focused on, you know, places that were lost, like um, Mill Creek Valley, you know, or the history of Kinlock and what was lost in Kinlock. And those maps tended to convey a sense of social distance or alienation. Jeff Ward says there's a white supremacist story written into our maps, into our landscape, from streets and towns named after slaveholders, like Clayton, to monuments and memorials that enshrine a specifically white view of history. These kinds of objects literally are scattered 
across the landscape in the names of places in historical markers that no one reads, but they're there. You know, my, my favorite example of that is the St. Louis County historical marker that is in downtown Clayton that begins with the line, the county was first visited by white colonists when missionary priests, Illinois French, and uh, Native American groups settled the temporary village of De Pere in 1700-03. But the sentence is amazing because it describes this diverse group of people, you know, the Kaskaskia and Tamaroa Indians, uh, the French and uh, these missionary priests, but it begins with establishing its subject as white colonists. The county was first visited by white colonists, mm-hmm. when effectively defines St. Louis County as a white place or says that St. Louis, that this place began to be significant as the history of the county goes when white colonists arrived. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the marker stands outside a prominent downtown Clayton uh, intersection, right outside the headquarters of the St. Louis County Police. Uh, And by the way, the marker was erected in 1955. 1955, one year after Brown v. Board of Education uh, forces desegregation, we get this white supremacist framing of St. Louis County uh, in in downtown Clayton. Uh, this is, you know, people have pointed out how Confederate monuments and place names and so forth, memorials, uh, emerge not, all, not, not primarily right after the Civil War, but in moments where the democratic polity sort of expands through civil rights reform and human rights reforms and the sort of backlash in the form of reasserting White dominance. I follow that thread with Professor David Cunningham, who's the chair of sociology at WashU, and Alia Nara. She was his teaching assistant last year and now works at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University. They also led a class that studied the maps. And they talked about how our landscape of public monuments and memorials changes over time, and about how different inhabitants of St. Louis view specific areas of the city and which parts of the city they choose to celebrate or remember or forget. Here's David Cunningham. I think one of the most important aspects of the broader public political debates we're having around monuments now are a a broader recognition that these are not fixed aspects of history. These are not things that are uh, unchangeable. They've always been there and they always will be there because they're quote unquote history. You know, what, what's really important is to understand that these objects have been placed for a reason at a particular time. And, and also when we think about St. Louis, one of the things we were trying to allude to is the many ways in which our history has been fluid um, in terms of the commemorative landscape. People will, will likely remember the removal in 2017 of the Confederate monument in Forest Park. Um, but also there's a more forgotten monument to a Union brigadier general that used to reside very prominently in Midtown. There used to be a, a pocket park on the corner of Laclede and Grands that had a statue to Nathaniel Lyon, a Union soldier. And that was moved, in effect, under the cover of darkness in the late 1950s to what's now Lion Park, which is down by Anheuser-Busch. Now it's kind of, in effect, banished to a corner of the city. You know, we've heard a lot lately about uh, the different waves of Confederate statues being erected, you know, generations after the Civil War, uh, interpreted as a statement of white supremacy. 
we hear a lot less about the removal of monuments to Union soldiers. As this happened in 1959, that must speak to the political moment of of the time in St. Louis. It did very directly. That particular removal was followed closely on the heels of the leveling of Mill Creek Valley, that entire neighborhood through quote-unquote urban renewal in St. Louis. And that really aligns with uh, St. Louis University's purchase of some of that land that was formerly Mill Creek Valley to extend their campus where Chaffetz Arena and the pond that they that they've constructed in front of that. It was purchased by SLU through the gift of a donor, uh, Harriet Frost Fordyce, who was the granddaughter of a Confederate officer. And one of the aspects of SLU taking on that land and building it there was uh, the removal of a statue that, in effect, was commemorating the political and military rival of the donor's uh, family. And so we just wanted to highlight the ways in which we collectively not just make our commemorative landscape, but always remake it. And it's been wonderful to see the ways in which people have taken that mantle, you know, most recently, of course, with the removal of the Christopher Columbus statue in Tower Grove Park. Um, But this is something where we really want to think about what does it mean to have an object here and how does it align with with our values currently and what we want the city to represent as we move into the future. This is not something that's Maybe a little poignant in in looking through the the lists of most cited places is when people do mention things like Highway 44 uh, or or 64, a.k.a. 40. And obviously those would not have been mentioned 100 years ago, um, but also those are things that are present in the landscape by way of removing things that used to be there, neighborhoods that used to be there, businesses that used to be there, communities that used to be there. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was most interesting when we were looking through sort of the physical compilation of all the maps, right, is thinking about how folks did take note of those marks of change over time. And especially the highways, I think, is a very, that that one's very clear, right? When you notice it, you know why the highways are being mentioned. Some of the things that I thought were maybe less obvious in the aggregate, but were really, really important individually when you're reading through the maps were things like Folks who mentioned the barricades um, on various streets, uh, particularly streets in, you know, University City and around um, Wash U's campus were the ones that I was taking notice of because I walked those streets every day. But um, people who were noting how different changes of the populations over time have been very clearly demarcated through roads and through access ways in St. Louis and how that continues today in ways that aren't always noticed. So people who drive down the highway every day aren't particularly thinking about what used to be there before the highway, but the folks who are excluded from those places or the folks who were removed from those places because of those access ways or because of those barriers, they think about that every day and how that has impacted both their daily lives in ways that, you know, you can't get down this one street, but also ways that that's impacted their communities um, in the case of the highways, sort of removing whole communities. And I think just sort of the physical demarcation of those two lived realities on the maps, you know, the same, the same place having two very different meanings to different map creators. I thought that was really interesting. And it seems that that really speaks to the, the real time interpretation and creation of history and of of social history. Exactly. I would just also highlight the significant number of maps that focused on 
uh, the black community in St. Louis and focused on issues of racism and recognition in St. Louis. Um, and then the other side of that are the really amazing, vibrant spaces that are emblematic of Black St. Louis that are under-recognized and really trying to lift those spaces up. You know, we can think of uh, more formal spaces like the Grio or the Vachon Museums, uh, but also there, there's just such a, a vibrant history associated with so many neighborhoods in St. Louis. And the maps did, just did such a wonderful job when taken as a whole about thinking of both what has historically and, and uh, in an ongoing sense divides communities in St. Louis uh, and represents the violences that have occurred historically in St. Louis, but also the possibilities, not just about imagined things, but about really recognizing and fully engaging with and utilizing spaces that remain in, in these places and the, the kinds of individuals and communities that are invested in those spaces. And so, you know, MAPS did a really nice job with recognition as well as imagination. I was just going to say, I think one of the important factors that we haven't necessarily discussed so much in this conversation is the demolished um, monuments and particularly the mounds that were mentioned in so many of these maps. And there were lots of folks who came up with really creative ways to reimagine how the mounds could factor into both a, you know, a potential physical monument, but also just ways that it, they could be sort of redrawn in the narrative of St. Louis in ways that really more accurately portray the history. Jeff Ward picks up the thread of how these Monument Lab maps reflect the history of presence and absence in St. Louis. I think a lot of what I found interesting was what people stressed as omissions in the landscape, as places and people that should be remembered, should be commemorated, and aren't. You know, Black communities that were destroyed by, displaced by um, urban removal, urban renewal, you know, the, the building of the highway, places like Mill Creek Valley that were thriving at one point and um, were displaced. The historic Chinatown, which was around where uh, Cardinal Stadium is today, the um, sites related to the history of enslavement in St. Louis, like the slave pens and auction sites that people were suggesting we need to remember, not just simply to kind of wallow in like, you know, the horrors of our past, but really to recover our shared history and and show how it differs from the myths we hold in our in our collective psyche and we tell in our stories about ourselves, you know, people added to their maps things related to the Underground Railroad in, in St. Louis and and other uh, freedom struggles and you know, these celebrations of freedom stories that we don't usually include in the American sort of, you know, patriotic stories about America's commitment to freedom. Yeah. You know, we don't incorporate in those narratives Juneteenth or the Underground Railroad, uh, slave rebellions. Those freedom stories get um, sort of symbolically annihilated in the stories we tell about our country and our commitment to freedom. And that becomes pro problematic in part because their exclusion, while the stories of white actors as crusaders for freedom um, get elevated, that omission reifies the idea that, um, that the real Americans, the real representatives of American values are white Americans. Um, 
this question of uh, kind of who are we and how should we remember how should we remember ourselves? That was Professor Jeff Ward of Washington University. You're listening to Cut and Paste, and we'll be right back after this quick little message. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back to Cut and Paste. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. And we're talking about monuments, memorials, public memory of places and of people. So what do you think the most cited locations were in the maps that people drew spontaneously of the city? The top ones are what you might guess. Number one was the Gateway Arch. That was mentioned in 306 of the 750 maps. Then the Mississippi River itself was cited in 173 maps. And after that, the list goes Forest Park, the Zoo, Tower Grove Park, and then St. Louis Art Museum, which has one more mention than Bush Stadium. And when you dig into the findings, you see that people who live in the city were much more likely to include the river than people in St. Louis County. But people who live west of the city were more likely to mention the zoo. And even when people put the same place on their map, they sometimes had different attitudes about the place. Professor Jeff Ward wrote an essay for the Monument Lab website about different ways the Gateway Arch was invoked on these maps. And the very different historical memories, their different maps summon up. When you look at those 300 or so maps that include the arch, there are some interesting differences in them. A just basic one being that many people, I would imagine the vast majority of people, treat it very uncritically as, a, as just a, a work of public art that is you know, that St. Louis is fortunate to have and a, and a icon of our city and a place that, you know, something that they are fond of for that reason. But other maps trouble the arch. They, they note, for example, that the arch stands in what was once a black, predominantly black neighborhood and where black residents were displaced to create this monument, memorial to westward expansion. And Others use the arch as a sort of reference point to describe other sort of patterns of structural violence, uh, racialized violence. One of the maps is called a map of racism, and it's a, a map of downtown St. Louis where the arch is included. And they identify places where racist microaggressions and um, insults more directly and physical violence have uh, occurred, including at the, at the very foot of the arch. Others note the arch's relevance to the displacement of indigenous people, to the sort of history of of genocide. What I ended up writing about, though, was a a subset of these maps that actually repositioned the arch, that changed it by having it span the Mississippi River rather than stand in St. Louis. So one foot is in Illinois, one foot is in Missouri, and several maps. And I thought this was really interesting. I wondered what meaning that had for people. And, and so I started just thinking more about what, about this way of seeing the arch as, you know, almost like a giant staple holding the two sides of the country together, straining under the, you know, straining to hold the country together. And uh, so there are all these sort of readings of the, of the meaning of the arch and the river that I found really interesting. And um, if you stand on the western side of the arch and look east, the arch frames East St. Louis. 
and that invites a a reflection on the atrocities there, particularly the racial massacre, nineteen eighteen. And listen, I'm so fascinated listening to you talk about different physical locations the arch can literally frame, depending on where you are, where where the viewer stands, and and the meanings that come up with that. I mean, when I moved to this city and started spending time around the arch, one of the first things you that strikes you is how the light hits it differently at different times and from different mm-hmm. different places. Uh, it's also a kind of ambiguous piece of public art. It's it's categorized as a memorial, which I don't think everyone necessarily thinks about when, when they see it. But it means different things to different people. And what I'm hearing from you is the idea of reclaiming it, perhaps, or recontextualizing it in a way that better suits an individual's sense of place and sense of history and sense of community. Yeah, and I think, you know, we see it elsewhere in the landscape. Um, This basic question, you know, um, who are we, you know, as a nation? And and how did we get here? And what's the truth? Uh, What's the real story? What does it mean to be an American? Who counts? Whose stories do we tell? And so much of what people are challenging with the commemorative landscape is, is this problem of white racial dominance. This idea that um, the people whose lives matter, whose stories matter, are the, you know, those who were here as settlers. Uh, this, this, this settler colonial story is what matters. And we've just told that story over and over through various commemorative devices. I mean, we're talking mostly about monuments and memorials now, but the same thing goes for textbooks and uh, history museums and so forth. As a component of this growing national and global commitment to dismantling white supremacy, there is this um, increasing insistence that our memorial landscape reflect the, the reality that this is a racially, ethnically um, diverse world and that we have difficult uh, pasts and stories that nevertheless must be told. That was Professor Jeff Ward of Washington University. You also heard from Professor David Cunningham, also of WashU, and Ali Nara. Uh, Professor Ward told me, by the way, that he wrote the mayor of Clayton about that problematic historical marker, and she has now formed a task force to look at the memorials in the city, and he is a member of it. This has been Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. It's produced with help from our executive editor, Shula Newman. Our intro and outro music is by Eric Hall. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Cut and Paste is sponsored by Gemma, architects, planners, and designers. <laughs>